How do you ponder the fact that the God of the universe befriended you in love? It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Well, some of you are wondering why I am here and not your favorite pastor. You know that. I know that. Ken and Kelly are at a wedding, their whole family. He was trying to get back to preach, and it would have been a red eye. So he decided to fill the pulpit with me. And next week, he and Kyle will be in Hong Kong, so you'll get me two weeks in a row. For that, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm not sure what that clapping is about. Like, we can't wait for Ken to get back. Appreciate your love. Yeah, two weeks in a row. That's right. Thanks, Dennis. Oh, sorry. Did I say your name out in front of everybody? How many of you, that's the first time you've sung that song, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation? First time. Wow. So for the rest of you, you've sung that song before? Is it your favorite song? Wow, I'm going to have to confront you. How can that not be one of your all-time favorite songs? Do you realize that is a German hymn from 1680? Did it sound like a German hymn? No. Because we have a very gifted music guy and music team. It was translated from German into English into the 1800s. What do the words that you and I just sung mean? What are they calling you and I to do? Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. All ye who hear, gather, draw near. Join me in what? Glad adoration. I love how verse 4 begins. Praise to the Lord, oh, let all that is in me, what? Adore him. Did you feel that? What do you do when you don't feel like gladly adoring God? I don't know about you, but there are times that I come to church and I sing songs, even my favorite songs. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. The king of creation. That was a hiccup, in case you were wondering what that was. (laughs) And you sing a song, and you go from one to the next. Have the words penetrated to your heart. As you think about the words, is it resulting in glad adoration? What is glad adoration? Thankfulness, gratitude for who God is and what he has done for you and me. That's the point of these songs, is to draw our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to God, to think about how God has intersected with each and every one of us in our life. The reality is there are days when I don't feel like praising the Lord Almighty, not just on Sundays. I mean, you know all the reasons why you should praise God, don't you? Intellectually, we understand that. We know what the Bible says. You may even have personal stories of God's goodness and faithfulness in your life. Maybe it's possible that even this morning you haven't truly experienced the joy of the Lord in a while. Maybe this has affected your time in prayer, your time in Bible study. You find yourself doing your duty, checking the list, and you come out the other end going, what did I just read? So what? And there's just silence. More duty than delight. Maybe it's affected your desire to serve and obey. And let's say just hypothetically, recently your senior pastor called you to come on a Wednesday night and pray October 10th. From 6 to 8.30, you're no dummy. You can do math. How much time is that? That is one hour and a half. And the thought of that is wearisome. 
praying for that long, and again, it's not all going to be prayer. There's going to be other elements to it, but the thought of going and praying that long, (sighs) have you ever felt that way? Hypothetically, if that were to happen. If we're honest, all of us have experienced something like this at some point in our Christian walk. We know we should praise the God of mercy, but we simply don't feel like it. Maybe the fire that stokes our passionate praise has grown dim and cold. Well, this morning, I want us to consider one of my favorite psalms in the Bible, Psalm 103, because it offers help when we don't feel like praising God. Turn to Psalm 103. We're going from one of my favorite hymns to one of my favorite psalms. As you're turning there, let me give you a little context. Because of all the books in the Old Testament, I think the book of Psalms most vividly represents the faith of individuals in the Lord as they respond to God Himself through a collection of praises and prayers in both public worship and private meditation. Some of these psalms that we read in the Psalter are are designed for the, the body corporately to praise God with. Some of them are individual. Psalm 103 is an individual thanksgiving hymn. That's what it is, written to give praise to God. And here in Psalm 103, King David takes a moment to survey God's goodness and his mercy. You say, well, Chris, how do you know King David wrote it? Well, the New American Standard says a psalm of David. Is that how we know? In the Hebrew text, the very first word is a preposition and then a proper name. Hebrew, it literally says, of David. Of David. Your Bible has translated that a psalm of David because that's the idea. King David has written this psalm as a praise for the Lord of mercy. And this psalm serves for us this morning as a great reminder that we must not forget the many blessings of God, but instead give thanks for receiving them, for enjoying them, as 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, in everything give, let's try that again, you weren't ready, in everything give, thanks, thank you. See, I'm giving thanks, I'm applying that. Give thanks in everything. So this psalm becomes a practical roadmap of how we are supposed to think about the mercies of God Because when you and I don't feel like praising the God of mercy, it's essential that we remind ourselves of who He really is and what He is doing for us. And this, in turn, should cause our hearts to reorient, reorient it toward Him, producing a response of gratitude and praise, no matter what the circumstances of your life may be. So this morning, I want to ask a series of questions in order to help us praise the God of mercy. So let's look at our first question. How should a person praise God? How should a person praise God? Well, notice what it says in Psalm 103 in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. You realize David answers this question here in verse 1. And notice, who is David talking to? Bless the Lord, O your soul, his soul, her soul. Whose? Bless the Lord, O my soul. He is exhorting himself. He is essentially calling himself to do this. And how should a person praise God? When it feels right, when it's convenient, when you have time, is that what the answer is? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. In fact, if you look, all is mentioned eight times in this psalm. All that is within me, 
literally in the Hebrew, it means intestines, your bowels. So the Hebrew reader would recognize by the use of that word, he's using this, this word to talk about his center of feeling and, and being from the gut. The entire person, we might say. Because even Jesus recognized that it is very easy for us to praise God with our lips. Look at Matthew 15.8. Keep your hand and finger in Psalm 103. Matthew 15.8. Jesus recognizes the danger of this, talking about the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He says, and he's quoting Isaiah here, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is what? Far from me, distant. They're doing all the right things. They're saying all of the right things with their mouth, but it comes from a heart that is focused on something else. There's something else motivating those words. So King David wants to praise the God of mercy with everything in him, his entire being, his heart, his mind, his body, his emotions, his affections, his thoughts, his actions. Again, that shouldn't surprise us, should us? What's the greatest commandment in the whole Bible? Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your mind, all your body, your soul, your strength, your everything. Love God with all of you. I don't know if you caught this, but I think the NIV is the only translation that changes the word bless to praise. All the other translations say bless the Lord. Is that odd to you? When's the last time you've said, God, I bless you? I bless you, Lord. How do we typically think of the word bless? Well, like blessing, that's true. If I'm at a wedding and I'm doing a wedding and I say, hey, may the Lord bless you, what do I mean? May he make your marriage what? Prosper, successful. May he bless you. Does that seem weird that we're doing that to God? Does God need our blessing? Think about that. Because the Hebrew word has the idea of bless. It's used six times throughout this psalm to stir the heart to praise. When we bless God, we are simply declaring that He is the origin of power for all success and prosperity. God, all of this comes from you. Bless you. It's literally an acknowledgement of praise, of recognition. So to bless the Lord is to strive to honor and please God by expressing love, by expressing gratitude for all He is and all He does. To praise God is to respond to all that He is with all that we are. Do you get that? You typically hear of praising and blessing God as the idea of ascribing to Him His proper worth, His proper glory. As I am responding to all that he is, everything in me responds in kind. In fact, Steve Lawson, one pastor author, says this. I love this. He says, it is a redeemed life being gloriously occupied with the grandeur and greatness of God. Look, I was at the Astros game last night. Anybody see that game? It was the, did you see? It was great. The slowest game. And then the eighth inning, they're down five to, to zero or one, I think it was. The Astros scored nine runs in the eighth inning. The Astro, what is, it, what is it called? Minute Maid Park. It was so loud. It was vibrating in my brain. The roar, the people were like, everyone was standing. You, you're like, I can't hear you. We're talking. I'm, I'm talking to my friend. We can't hear each other. It's so loud. What is that? Adoration, exaltation, joy. Ex I mean, people are high-fiving each other. They're sharing their nachos. Here, you want some of my nachos? 
What were they gloriously occupied with? You and I get gloriously occupied with things, don't we? But Steve Lawson rightly says this is the redeemed man or woman, boy or girl, who is so gloriously occupied with the grandeur and majesty of God that the only thing we can do is say, bless you, praise be unto your name. David doesn't want a shallow response here. He wants a complete, all-encompassing flood of praise that is sincere and wholehearted. I'll just give you a negative example of this. So often when you and I pray to thank God for our food, anybody do that still? Yeah, this is a good thing, right? We should pray and thank God for our food. So often I find myself saying, God, thanks for this food, thanks for the grub, thanks for, thanks for the carrots. Somehow take this cheesecake and anatomically change it so that it becomes profitable for my body. God, thank you for this, thank you for that. And the whole time I'm thinking, man, the food is getting cold. Grumbling is happening as I'm praying. And what happens to the length of that prayer? I mean, sometimes we just get so caught up in, with our lips doing the right thing, but what motivates that? Are you truly thankful for your carrots? I mean, Brussels sprouts, I don't know how you could be thankful. But at least I picked a vegetable that's good. Sorry if I offended any Brussels sprout lovers out there. How should a person praise God with all of their being entirely? Notice the focus is not on oneself, but on the holy name of the Lord now, in your translation, most English translations, anytime we have the Hebrew proper name for God, Yahweh, what they do is they capitalize it, L-O-R-D. You see that in your translation? So every time it's capitalized, that is the Hebrew word for the proper name of God. It's 11 times in this psalm. The focus is not on David. The focus is on the name of the Lord this brings to mind all of his perfections, all of his acts of deliverance. I mean, you think about that. What's in a name? Let's just, for example, I'm going to say a name. What's the first thing that pops into your head? Kyle Jennison. Soccer. <laughs> the first thing that pops into my head is watching him try to slalom ski with his forehead on Tuesday. Anybody see that video? It was posted. That was impressive. When I think of Kyle, what do I think of? A servant. Think of a guy who loves Jesus. Sometimes when he prays, sometimes when he preaches, the emotions flood in within him. And as I worked with him in these last two years, this is a guy who loves Christ. When I say the name Kyle Jennison, I think he, he's funny. In fact, that's one of the reasons our friendship is a success, because he makes me laugh. Don't ever stop making me laugh. He loves his wife and his daughter. You just start thinking about all the things that define Kyle Jennison. Now I'm going to give you another name. Hitler. When is the last time you've seen anybody name their child Hitler? Why is that? That name has become so associated with what? Evil wickedness, horrific atrocity. When I say the word Yahweh, what comes into your mind? God. Yeah, I got to love him and he created me. And... Or is it Yahweh? Wow. He's holy. Everything he does is right and pure and good. David wants to take his heart and, and his attention and his emotions and his affections. He wants to take all of that and he wants to see God right and holy and high. 
Because the bigger his view of God is, what will that do? Stir his heart to gratitude and thanks and praise. And when that heart is being stirred, what does it do to our our mouth and our our thoughts and our hands? It motivates us to, to do something in light of who God is. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Do you get it? It's what David is calling himself to. And I believe he's calling us to. That's how a person should praise God. What about the second question in verses 2 to 5? Why should a person praise God? Why? Well, notice what he says. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Verse 2, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Again, what does he say? Bless the Lord of my soul. He's reminding himself again of his purpose and, and here's where he adds something, forget none of his benefits. You know what the opposite of praise is? Forgetfulness. Think about that. If I am not actively praising God, it's because I'm forgetting who God is. And if I am not in awe of God, who will I be in awe of? Me. Because I'm the most important person I know. I genuinely love myself. That's why the second great greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as your... I already know how to love me. I need to learn to love you more than I love me. Moses admonished Israel multiple times to remember the Lord and not forget. Multiple times, time and time again. In fact, in Judges chapter 2, verse 7, all the way through Judges chapter 3, verse 7, I'm not going to read it this morning, he talks about how the generations were to remember God, to praise God, to obey God. And then what were they supposed to do with that truth of who God was? The stories of, of God's deliverance. What were they supposed to do? Tell it to the next generation. And the next generation. So that this truth of God would be passed on. In fact, it was the third generation of Moses' day that forgot the nation began to decay, they, be, they became spiritually and morally decrepit. In, there in Judges 2, verse 10, it says, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor the work He had done. They forgot. Somewhere along the line of passing this baton, the, the baton had been dropped not just dropped, kicked out of the way, lost, forgotten. And a whole generation arose that did not know God or remember what He had done for their forefathers. Does that sound familiar, American church? If we were in England right now, they're about 25 years further down this road than we are. whole generation of UK Christians have forgotten God. They're, it's hard to find churches in the UK. They're turning them into to bars and, and dance halls. Is that where America's headed? Let's briefly look at how God views those who forget Him. Look at 2 Chronicles 32. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 25. You're going to go left. From Psalms. Second Chronicles 32. Second Chronicles comes right after First Chronicles. I know. I went to seminary. As you're turning there, let me remind you of the story. King Hezekiah cries out to God for deliverance from the Assyrian army. God answers his prayer, sends an angel to kill all of the heads of the army, and basically this king leaves in shame. He saves the nation. It's an amazing story of God's faithfulness in answering prayer. 
Hezekiah begins to receive praise, starts to receive gifts. That's in verse 20. And then what happens? Verse 24, Hezekiah gets sick. It says, in, the, in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. You know what that sign was? He healed him. Because in the next verse, he's still alive. And then notice what verse 25 says. In response to this great God and his mercy, but Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. He gave no return for the benefit he received. What does that mean? He didn't say, thank you, God. You healed me. He didn't tell people, I was dying, and you know why I'm alive? Because I prayed, and the God of mercy healed me. That's what it would have meant to give benefit. To bless God, this came from God. He alone is powerful enough to heal me from death to life. And why? He gave no return for the benefit he received because, here's why, his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. How does God respond to the proud? Is that ever a place you want to find yourself in? James 4, 6 reminds us that God is opposed to the proud. A military term in the Greek where he is standing in full battle array against you and you are going to lose. Hezekiah responds with pride. And it wasn't just on him, it was on the people. And so what does Hezekiah do in verse 26? However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He didn't just humble his hearts, he said, Jerusalem, we need to repent. This was God that did this, not me. And so the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. God hates pride. He hates it. They forgot who truly saved them. Hezekiah forgot who truly healed him. Now turn with me to this one last text in this section, Deuteronomy 8. Go left yet again. Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 10. You remember the context of this. The spies have already gone into the land. They came back, convinced the people, God can't take these people, we can't take these people. So God killed off that whole generation in the desert 40 years later. In Deuteronomy 8, they come back to the River Jordan. They're looking across to the Promised Land, and this is what Moses tells them, how they're going to go in and take the land and why God led them through the desert to show them what was in their hearts. And here in verse 10, he picks up with that in mind. He says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, what's he talking about? When you get the promised land and you get all the good blessings that God has given you, that's what he means. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware. Boy, I feel like we need to be saying this more in our church today. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, here's the warning, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Oh, is that us, American church? Has our prosperity so caused us to forget from whence it came that we have forgotten why God blessed us in the first place? Is it possible that our hearts have grown proud? I call it the Nebuchadnezzar syndrome. Look at all that I built. All of this I did. 
And God says, uh, no. Seven years, cow, boom. And what does, Hezekiah, or what does Nebuchadnezzar say at the end of it? God did this. God does what he wants when he wants because he is God and I am not. Sometimes I think we don't feel like praising the God of mercy because we have forgotten who he is and what he's done for us. And part of it is because pride has, and I don't think we just wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to decide to be proud today. I think it's subtle. It's baby steps toward pride in the heart. And we go by months and then days, and days, months, years, and pretty soon we, we forget this is all from God. It's all from Him and it's for Him. And when I get it, I enjoy it. And then I look for how I can share it. And the whole time I'm saying, God, bless you as you bless me. Is it possible we have forgotten that we are not the king of our castle? Verse 17, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. And then what happens? Again, it's just a, a dark road that leads to this final thought in verse 19. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. It's idolatry. When you and I forget God, what do we do? We replace God with something else. And it could be a successful marriage. It could be something good. I, I want to have an intimate relationship with my, my spouse. or I want my kids to obey. I want, it could be something good. It could be something totally sinful. I want money. I want prestige. I want respect. I deserve it. Somewhere in there, we forget God. We forget God has given us all of these things. And it becomes not to Him, to His glory, and for His kingdom. It becomes about me. And it becomes about you. Do not forget the Lord. So why should we praise the Lord? Back to Psalm 103. The answer, David gives us. Bless the Lord, O my soul and forget none of his benefits. Benefits, what's a benefit? These are the gifts and blessings, both physical and spiritual, that God gives us. And when you think about God in the many ways that he's faithful to us, not only to us throughout the scriptures, throughout church history, should cause us to rejoice. Because the reality is that what we have now is more than we deserve. And recognize that when David is calling us to to forget none of the benefits of God, he's still saying, remember not just the gifts, the good gifts, but remember the good gift giver. Yahweh is still the source, the focus. So here in verse 3, David begins a list of benefits. Notice what these benefits are. First, forgiveness of sins. Starting in verse 3, who pardons all your iniquities. This is the greatest thing that we should be thankful for. Because what if we were to acquire all those nice things, our money, our wealth, cars, boats, food, clothing, jobs, families, obedient children, material possessions, we get it all, but we forfeit our soul. What good is it? Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Answer, church, Nothing. In fact, not just nothing, you get punishment, separation from God. You gained the world, but you lost it all in the end. You see, forgiveness of sins is the greatest benefit any of us can ever receive from God, and we can receive it only because God gave His Son over to death on the cross to secure it for us. That's what it means to pardon someone. It's, it's, it's courtroom language. 
If the judge pardons a guilty, convicted person, what is he saying? You are guilty, you deserve to be guilty, but I declare that you are what? Not guilty. God pardoned us, but what did he do with that just punishment in sin? He took it, the death that was ours to die, and he put it on Christ on the cross. There was a cost involved. And how much does God forgive us? What does this pardon look like? Look at verse 12. David talks about this later. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. East and west are not points on a map. If I said God loved us, he he removed the sins from us as far as L.A. from New York. You could like map that out, a really, really long tape measure. That's how far he loves us. That's not what east and west is. East and west are points that keep going. What's the point? Infinitely. That's how far he removes your sin, your guilt, your shame, your death from you. He pardons us that much. It's not just forgiveness of sins. Notice it's also healing. The end of verse 3 says, Who heals all your diseases? God is not only able to, to heal the soul through forgiveness, but He is able to heal the physical as well because God is our great physician. Both spiritual and physical dimensions are accounted for This doesn't mean that God is required to bring healing. I know some people will read this and say, well, that seems to say He's going to heal all. This is not a promise to heal all of our diseases. What it means is that whether God chooses to answer prayer miraculously and bring healing, whether God chooses to let the natural way He created our body bring healing, or whether God chooses to use doctors at MD Anderson to bring about healing through technology, where does it all come from? From God. It all comes from the Lord. Not just healing. Notice in verse 4, redemption from the pits. Who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Again, this, this is the word sheol, which sometimes talks about the pit that, that, that Satan gets chucked into. Here, it's talking about the grave. Literally, a grave. God brings us back from the very brink of death and spiritual separation. Through Christ's death, our souls are purchased back from hell. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought with a what? Price. It costs. Therefore, I glorify God with your body. That's what redemption means. It's the payment of a price to secure release. And He not only saves us from death, both physical and spiritual, but He adds extra honor by crowning us, blessing us with His perfect and divine loving kindness and compassion. This was my most favorite Hebrew word in seminary, chesed. I think the German in me helps communicate that more clearly. Chesed. Chesed love. It's it's this loyal, loving kindness that God has for us. Once he chooses to set this loyal love on you, nothing will remove it. So not only does he remove you from the brink of death, but then he elevates you and adopts you and crowns you with his loving kindness and his compassion. Oh, wonder of wonders. Not only that, in verse 5, he satisfies us with good things. This is another benefit, satisfaction with good things. Verse 5, he satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. He takes care of our spiritual condition. He takes care of our physical condition. He restores us spiritually. And on top of that, He satisfies our desires with good things. What is this satisfaction? It's to be content, to be joyful in what He gives. So why does He use the image of an eagle? Isaiah 40, verse 31, talks about rising up on the wings of eagles has the picture of vitality and energy and long life, strength, freedom that all come from the benefits of restoration to God's divine favor. When we are living our life His way, in His will, 
According to his standards, we receive good things in the life to enjoy them, both in this life and the life to come. This is not an exhaustive list of benefits, but it's pretty great. You agree? I want to illustrate for you what happens when we forget God and his benefits. This last week, I found myself incredibly irritated with my wife. I know you're surprised. She's kind. She's gracious. She's loving. Those of you who know her are like, Chris, that, that had to have been your fault. How could you be irritated with this precious gift from the Lord? I mean, does she even struggle with sin? And it was little things. It wasn't like this big major blowout we had. It was little things that in totality became bigger. We had a miscommunication. She didn't make my quesadilla the way I liked it. Too much salsa. I couldn't taste the chicken and the cheese. <laughs> Honey, how many times have you made my quesadilla? It's not rocket science. Her headache was worse some days which prevented her from serving me the way I preferred. We wanted to go for a walk one morning. It's one way we can exercise together. We talk, we enjoy. She's like, no, my headache hurts. I'm like, fine, I'll go walk on my treadmill. Why did that irritate me? And one after the next after the next, it became bigger. Thursday morning, I'm driving to a breakfast meeting trying to figure out why I'm so bothered, irritated by this precious gift of a wife God gave me. It's almost as if God wanted me to apply this sermon in my own life before I delivered it to you. Almost as if. And it hits me. Not only did I lose sight of all that God is and does, I forgot who gave me my wife. Instead of remembering how wonderfully God has taken care of me and provided for me by remembering all of the blessings that he's given me, including my wife, my own pride, my own selfishness became a microscope through which I viewed each one of these instances. I mean, what does a microscope do? It helps you look at something that is very tiny, and what does it do? It makes it big. I was big in my own heart and mind. When Shelley did these little things, what did it do? It offended me. What should I have done? What does a telescope do? You set it up at night, you point it to the stars, and what does it do? It helps you realize just how big everything is, just how big the stars are. And I'm sitting there driving to this meeting, a breakfast meeting, and I'm thinking about the gospel, and I'm thinking about God's compassion on me and his forgiveness for me. And I'm, I'm recognizing the reason I'm so irritated by those things is because I wanted something, I didn't get it, and I got angry, I got upset because she's not doing it my way. If God treated me that way, what, what, what hope would I have? And the love and the kindness of God, the more I, I use the telescope of his word and I trust the Holy Spirit and I'm seeing just how great and magnificent God is and his benefits are, in comparison to that, what did this look like? It's tiny, it's so small. And yet I got so irritated and bothered by it. And in that moment, sweet repentance led to gratitude and praise as I, I praised God for all that he is and all that he's done. The first thing that popped into my head after that was the fact that my wife is alive. She had a tumor taken out of her brain. She could have died. Then I would have had nobody to be irritated at. I mean, think about that. The greatness of God drowned out the insignificance of my own little disappointment. Maybe you're here this morning, you're struggling. Maybe you're depressed or anxious. Maybe you just got bad news, maybe medically or maybe relationally. 
Maybe you just found out your child has been rebelling for months and you didn't know it. You just got a pink slip and you don't know what the future of your job is. And you don't feel like praising the God of mercy. Maybe you've lost sight of God and His wonderful benefits. Maybe you sing the song and you're saying the words, but your heart is far from Him. Maybe you've forgotten who God is and His benefits. I want to take a moment and give you 60 seconds to write down a couple benefits that God has given you this week. Right now, you pause. How has God blessed you? What is He doing in your life? What is at least one benefit that God has given you today that you can choose to say, in light of all of the circumstances of my life, I will praise you, God. Take a moment and do that right now. How are you going to remember that benefit this week when you are tempted to get microscopic about the struggles that come? Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Well, we've looked at how a person should praise God. We looked at why a person should praise God. And really quickly, we can look at what is God like that we should praise Him. What is God like that we should praise Him? Verses 6 to 18, David gives us a threefold answer. He's reminding himself of what God is like. In verses 6 to 10, he talks about the triumph of God's mercy. In verse 6, he says, The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. God is deliverer. He takes care of the oppressed, the persecuted, and the needy. In verse 7, God is guide. It says, He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. God guides us. Again, think about in Moses' day, they had a glory cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. They had the prophets, the word being prophesied. They watched God's faithful deeds. God guided them. Verse 8, God is holy yet patient, just yet forgiving. I love this verse. Verse 8, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Here David is quoting Moses from Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. This is what we call a creedal statement. What is a creed? A creed is a, a, a statement of faith almost, and you repeat it to remind yourself of this truth. And Israel repeated that phrase over and over and over again to remind them so that they would not, what? Forget. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. If God was not slow to anger, what would He be doing right now in America? Judgment. You talk about coal coming on someone's head, there would be coal raining from heaven on some of us, maybe. But He is slow to anger on one hand, and yet abounding in loving kindness, overflowing, abundant. When the trials that come our, our circumstances don't go our way, we're tempted to forget that God's mercy is still in control. The doubts flood in. We struggle to walk by faith because we can't see it. Second Corinthians 5, 7. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, above the mountains of our sins, the floods of God's mercy rise. 
Think about the mountains of sin in your life. No matter how big or much or often you sin, God's mercy floods into your life and always, always rises above your sin. Beautiful picture of His loving kindness. And while God is just in judging sin, He doesn't continually criticize and hold our sins against us. As David is writing this part of the psalm, can you imagine some sins that he's thinking about? What would some sins be in David's life that he is aware of? Adultery, murder, lying, not fulfilling his kingly duty. He should have been with the army. Instead, he was back home. And so on it goes. Notice verse 9. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. This word strive, in fact, the NIV translates it accuse. God does not treat us the way that we deserve to be treated. He's gracious, he's slow, and someday that will come to an end. But because of his patience and his long suffering, not yet. Verse 10 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. When people say, that's not fair, God's not just, I cringe. Because what is fair? What is just? Do I deserve the cross? Do I deserve to be saved? Well, Chris, you were a missionary for nine years. Surely that means you're more worthy of God saving you. You're a pastor. Surely... You counsel people, surely, really? What do I deserve, church? What do you deserve? Hell and damnation. The fact that God chose to set His loyal love on you and me is amazing. I don't understand it. That's why we have that hymn, Amazing Love, Oh, how, how can it be that God, what? Remember the hymn? Christ died for me. This, the hymn, hymn writer is going, this is amazing. How can this be? Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounded much more. And just like a courtroom, the righteous judge has all the evidence, the right to eternal anger, but God patiently loves us and forgives us. That's the triumph of God's mercy. This is the God. This is what God is like that we should praise Him. Notice the second, the greatness of God's mercy in verses 11 to 14. Again, moving rapidly. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. Can you picture David writing these words, looking up into the heavens and seeing the stars and the celestial beings in orbit and the moon and going, those are so high. God is higher. His love is higher to those who fear Him. Again, to fear God is to revere God, to obey Him. It's godliness. To fear God is to hate, to displease God. To choose to live His way when offered some other alternative. The world says, no, you'll be happy this way. And I say, no, I fear Yahweh. And I trust him, I'm going to do it his way. The greatness of God's mercy in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as is removed our transgressions from us. Again, it's just the incredible, immeasurably perfect, clean forgiveness that he gives. Verse 13, notice what it says, just as a father has compassion on his children, the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. How great is God's forgiveness, his compassion on the weak and the frail sometimes disobedient children. The greatness of God's mercy in verse 14, for He Himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. Who created us? God did. He knows you came from dust. He knows how much you can take when you're struggling. He knows what you need. He's mindful of you. Never going to allow you to bear what you cannot endure. 1 Corinthians 10 13. 
So we not only have the triumph of God's mercy and the greatness of God's mercy, but then in verses 15 to 18, the eternity of God's mercy. Notice what he says, As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over, it is no more. Its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, and those who fear him is righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. frailty of man is compared with the eternality of God. Just about every end of May, what goes away that comes every March, April here in Texas? It's a flower. And the minute you see it, what do you want to do? Go jump in it and take a picture. Right? The blue bonnets. May comes around and one of my daughters goes, hey, where do those blue flowers go? Where did they go? They're here one moment, and the next they're gone. It's rather humbling, isn't it? That's the picture here in Psalm 103. As for man, his days are like grass, a flower in the field. He flourishes, the wind passes over, it's no more. It's place that acknowledges it no longer. Man is like that. But notice in comparison, verse 17, the loving kindness of the Lord is from what? Everlasting to everlasting. Think about how quickly you and I take our love off of someone because of what they did or didn't do. We are so quick to remove our love. Does God do that? This verse is saying the opposite, that he doesn't do that. No matter how sinful and wicked you are, He loves you. He wants His best for you. From eternity to eternity, if you would but repent and turn and live life His way through the finished person and work of Jesus Christ. God has clearly told us that if we remember to obey Him, He will love and bless us. God's mercy is not like a wind that blows through our hair and is gone. And notice we can't just pick and choose the commandments that we want. The text says that to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them, we've got to strive to please Him by living this book. Not just knowing it, not just preaching it at each other. I want to live this. God is worthy. And to teach it to the next generation. Well, we saw how we should worship, praise God, bless God. We saw why. We saw what God is like that we should praise. And the, the last question is, who should praise God in verses 19 and 22? Who should praise God? Now, before you even read the text, what do you think the answer to that question should be? Who should praise God? All of the Christians. Wait, I'm sorry, what did you say? Everyone? Obviously, our senior pastor is doing a good job. David's not satisfied with the answer, only those who are saved. David's response is, God is so great that nothing short of all creation praising God will do. So notice what he does. He says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord. Now he, he turns the attention from him, calling himself to bless God, and he says, you, creation, you, Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word. He starts with angelic beings. They always submit to God's will to praise God through their obedience. God says, angel, go do this. The angel says, yes, sir, and does it. Verse 21, bless the Lord, all you His hosts. This word host has the idea of an army. So what is that? That's an angelic army, individual angels and groups of angels. When God says, do this, they do it. They honor Him, they obey Him, they praise Him, they bless Him. You who serve Him doing His will, He moves from that to works. Creation, verse 22, bless the Lord, you, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. That's that just everything else, the trees, our food, the ice cream that I'm going to eat this afternoon. 
That ice cream magnifies God and His glory. I love that. I think we should eat more ice cream to give God glory. I'm still trying to convince my wife of that. It's another irritated thing. The animals, in fact, the Word of God says that if we don't cry out, even the very rocks will cry out. And then verse, at the end of verse 22, he says, in all places of his dominion, and then he closes with this last sentence, bless the Lord, O my soul. He just reminds himself, I have to do it too. Who should praise the God of mercy? Church, what's the answer? All of creation. See, Psalm 103 displays the mercy of God. To our amazement, we do not get what we deserve. That's what mercy is. God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve rejection. Instead, we get acceptance. We deserve wrath, and instead we get mercy. We deserve hell, and instead we get heaven. We deserve the devil. Sometimes Shelley says, I act like the devil. That's not a nice thing to say. Those of you who know me, they're like, oh yeah, I see it. He's in there sometimes. We deserve the devil. What do we get? Jesus, our Savior. God's mercy is over all. I just want to challenge you to do one thing this week, just in practical application as you think about this message and this psalm. Take a few, few moments every day. I want you to think about God. Think, think about something that God has actively done or doing in your life. Think about a benefit that He's given you. It could be something related to his attribute. It could be a promise that he, he's given through Scripture, something like he's never going to leave you or forsake you. Something he's promised in his word. One day it might be forgiveness. The next day it maybe he gives you a pay raise. The next day maybe something about your family. Maybe the next day you're just amazed by the compassion of God in your life. That he would send his son for you and so on. And I want to challenge you to take a moment every day, whether it's in the morning, midday, night, whenever is best for you, just take a moment to thank God for His mercy. This pattern of thinking in your life as you begin to praise the God of mercy, as you begin to remember all of His benefits, as you begin to remember the good gift giver, the more you do that when you encounter those little things, that irritate or bother you or cause you to be anxious or depressed, you will be more inclined to, to throw away the microscope and pull out the telescope so that when we sing songs or you hear these words, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, your soul responds because you are training it to think high, holy, right thoughts of God throughout the day. I mean, deep in our hearts, we believe in a good God, don't we? We do. It's a little bit more challenging when times are tough. In fact, I think sometimes how shallow my understanding of His goodness is, especially when we see so many things that seem to deny it. You know who Corrie ten Boom is? She and her family went through the concentration camps. She suffered so much. She clarifies this issue for us. I just want to end with a quote from Corrie Tin Boom. She wrote this. Often I have heard people say how good God is. We prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather. But God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. <laughs> Does that sound like an understatement? She says, everything around us was dark. There was darkness in my heart. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, said Betsy. He has not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Corey concluded this, There is an ocean of God's love available. There is plenty for everyone. 
Do you believe that? How in the world could Corey Tin Boom watch her sister starve to death in front of her and die and maintain a heart and a desire to praise the God of mercy? She did it. You and I can do it. And we may never face something so horrific as a concentration camp, but I promise you, whatever you are going through, in whatever season when you don't feel like praising the God of mercy, there is an ocean of God's love for you. If you would but believe and trust and choose to take the telescope of God's word and fix your eyes on the greatness and grandeur of our merciful God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, this truth is amazing. It is hard for us to comprehend. We confess that. We don't fully understand, especially when things are not going well. And so, Lord, I ask that you would increase our faith, that you would give us eyes to see and a heart to trust and believe. Lord, you know what every person in this room is going through. You know some of them are in times of incredible joy. And as they hear these truths and the benefits and all the, the wonder of who you are, their, their, their soul sings. Lord, would you continue to encourage them? But there are others in this room I know who are struggling, who are doubting, questioning maybe your goodness. Lord God, would you help them to see you for who you really are? Would you help them to forget none of your benefits they would never forget you. Grant them the faith and the eyes to see you clearly. That they would respond with obedience, joy, praise, and blessing of your holy name. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.